BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. And most significantly, welcome to the end of the Donald Trump presidency and a new day for America, a new president, a new direction, a world of exciting new possibilities. You know, every change of administration is charged with excitement, but this one especially so because the contrast is so great. We're dramatically turning the page from a totally incompetent president to a master at governing and getting things done. From an ignorant boob to one of the most experienced and well-informed men ever to occupy the Oval Office. From a pathological liar to a man you can count on to always tell the truth. And from an outright racist to a man who's always fought for and earned the support of the African-American community, who embraced the Black Lives Matter movement, and who's nominated the most diverse cabinet in history. Indeed, expectations are high for the Joe Biden presidency, yet he starts out saddled with the most serious healthcare crisis in our history, a severe economic slump, and the presence of a dangerous extremist white supremacist movement. So what can we realistically expect from the Biden administration in the first two years? Or what about the first 100 days? Or what about day one? Joining us today with their insights, Two reporters from Politico who have covered the Biden transition, Alice Olstein, who specializes in healthcare matters, and Caitlin Emma, whose special reporting area is the budget. Alice, Alice Olstein and Caitlin Emma, great to talk to you both. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Bill Press Pod. Good to be here. January 19, Tuesday, as we talk. Uh, tomorrow, America turns the page, you know, and historically, um, I've been around for a few presidents. Uh, there's kind of one of two ways of going. Either a president just sort of eases in and gradually takes over, or a president hits the ground running in a big and bold way. Uh, what can we expect Joe Biden? Which approach do you think Joe Biden's going to take? Uh, Alice, let's start with you. Sure. So from everything that the team has been signaling and that we've been reporting, it's going to be the latter. It's going to be coming out of the gate with a bunch of executive orders and pushing Congress for a lot of very quick actions. Of course, he's taking office in the middle of a once in a century pandemic, which has caused an economic crisis. And there's also all of this national security uh, anxiety right now, internal and external threats. And so I think he is going to make the argument that a lot of aggressive action is needed and what Congress can do will be one piece of it. But he's also going to come out of the gate with a host of executive actions on his own. Mm -hmm. Do you see it the same way, Caitlin? Certainly. Um, and certainly the moment necessitates big action. I mean, like Alice said, uh, if you look at the onset of the Obama administra administration, right, I mean, he was taking office in the middle of 
at the time what seems like an unprecedented economic crisis. So to look at the moment now, add on top of that, you know, a pandemic that, you know, hasn't abated, that requires vaccinating everybody in the country, um, you know, it, it necessitates bold action. And I'm, I'm sure that the transition team plans to do that. Um, obviously, Congress is going to be a big part of that in terms of what they're going to um, pass through both houses and, you know, how exactly they might pursue that. You know, obviously, Democrats now have a narrow majority in the Senate. So there are a couple ways that they could could go about this. And it'll be really interesting to see, you know, exactly how they plan to pursue bold action in Congress. What can we expect on day one? So we learned uh, just over the past few days a lot of the things that Biden plans to do. There were both some official announcements as well as some leaks of, of memos that are uh, going around the transition officials. And so we do know that uh, on the health front, um, because the pandemic is the overriding priority, um, incoming uh, President-elect Biden plans to rejoin the World Health Organization that Trump uh, exited mm -hmm. um, last year. And that will, you know, bring about more global cooperation on the pandemic. The idea is that, you know, we're not safe here until people are safe everywhere because of the way viruses spread. He's also going to issue um, mask mandates for all interstate travel and in all federal buildings. Um, he's also going to do a just a lot of different things in a lot of different areas outside of health. He plans to halt federal executions. Um, he plans to cancel the Keystone XL uh, pipeline permit. Um, he's going to get rid of the travel ban on uh, majority Muslim countries, which people call the Muslim ban. Um, he's going to rejoin the Paris Climate Accords. He's going to rescind the ban on trans people serving in the military. And he is going to continue some of the uh, pauses on student loan uh, collections and evictions. And um, they said that this isn't a comprehensive list. There could be more. Um, you know, we've been noticing some things that aren't on this list, but, you know, it doesn't mean that they won't happen. Well, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's back up. You're saying the, these are day one actions? That that is what the transition has has signaled. Yes. And so that means that these executive orders, these executive orders are written, ready to be signed once he gets back to the Capitol from the from uh, back to the White House from the Capitol. Yeah, right? they want to come. Right. Right. They want to come out of the gate and do a lot of things right away. And then, you know, more in the coming days as well. Yeah. So, Caitlin, what's left after all of that? <laughs> well, uh, that's certainly a lot. Obviously, there is a need, though, for a huge fiscal stimulus package. Um, which requires Congress, right? Which requires Congress, exactly. And now that, you know, Democrats have a narrow majority in the Senate, they still have a majority in the House, although that majority is smaller. Um, you know, one would think like easy peasy, like, let's pass a $3 trillion plus package, you know, Democrats control everything. Uh, let's just get it done. But uh, from what we've heard from the Biden transition team, it sounds like, at least initially, they're hoping to pursue a bipartisan deal on a huge fiscal stimulus package, pandemic aid package. So that obviously requires um, some Republican input. And that is is tricky. Um, you know, obviously, Republicans have been long opposed to providing more state and local aid. You've had a lot of Republicans just raising concerns about, you know, the overall top line number for a fiscal stimulus package. Mm -hmm. So it's 
kind of remains to be seen. I mean, it seems like it's like a gesture of at least goodwill to say like, you know, I'm now the president, I'm coming in, I'm going to, you know, work with Republicans to the extent that I can. But should that not happen? Um, now that Democrats have a majority in Congress, they uh, can pursue this tool called budget reconciliation. They can use this process to essentially pass as big of a package as they want um, by using this special, it's a privilege procedure that, you know, evades the Senate filibuster. It only requires a simple majority in the Senate to, to pass it. So they have this in their back pocket, but at least initially all indications, you know, show that they're, he's going to come out and try to make overtures to, to Mitch McConnell and see if it's possible to get, you know, a really grand bipartisan deal. Well, that's sort of who Joe Biden is and always has been, Caitlin, but, um, and certainly that's, that's sort of his inclination. Um, is there any indication, it is a two-way street, is there any indication there'll be anybody, starting with Mitch McConnell, willing to um, seek a middle ground? Certainly. Um, you know, I, I think Republicans would like some buy-in here because they have this tool. They have this reconciliation tool in their back pocket. And should they choose to use that, they can go as big as they want. I mean, definitely you're limited in how often you can use this tool and what you can use it for. But when it comes to direct spending, whatever Democrats want, they can put in this tool. And I think Republicans would like to avoid the scenario of being totally left out of negotiations on this front. But again, mm -hmm. You know, it really remains to be seen. You've had Republicans all over the place on, you know, Josh Hawley supports stimulus checks. Other Republican members of Congress say no. You know, you've had uh, a lot of talk from Ron Johnson about the debt and the deficit, which, you know, I think a lot of uh, uh, people would roll their eyes at, considering that, you know, in 2017, Republicans used reconciliation to pass like a huge package of tax cuts. So, you know, I think they'd like, Republicans would like a seat at the table um, in terms of what they're willing to accept now that Joe Biden's president versus when he wasn't president. It's a little bit unclear at the moment. I just wanted to point out, so Republican uh, offices on Capitol Hill have pointed out to me that most Republicans in the Senate voted for the last COVID stimulus bill. Of course, Democratic offices counter, yeah, but look how long that took. It took so many months of stalemate and compromise, and we you know, had to water down the bill and not get all of what we wanted. And so they counter that that's not really an example of success and that they don't have time to do the same thing this time around and spend months and months and months uh, to get another round out. And so, like Caitlin said, you know, both lawmakers and uh, Biden and his team prefer a bipartisan approach, but they're not going to wait around forever. And they are going to be um, ready to move using reconciliation if necessary. So this also underscores um, the important role that Kamala Harris will play, right? I mean, usually we know this, the vice president is the president of the Senate, and he's always sort of, they could always bring him in uh, if they need to, but uh, that's a, that happens rarely, right? It sounds like what you're saying, that Kamala Harris may be up there <laughs> every day. It's certainly possible. I mean, that could even happen, you know, you know, within within the first uh, you know weeks and months of of the new administration, it's, yeah. it's um, you know because otherwise you know there's an exact fifty fifty split, and so she she is the difference maker here. Uh, she is the crucial vote to to get them over the finish line. But 
that also means that Democrats cannot lose a single vote within their caucus. And there is some diversity of opinion and some more conservative uh, Democrats and who are not as willing to go big on a lot of these mm -hmm. progressive priorities. Yeah. And Caitlin, it also underscores the important role of uh, a new power of Chuck Schumer. Right. I mean, he he runs the show. Right. Um, I think this is probably the mo uh, moment that uh, soon to be majority leader Chuck Schumer has been waiting for for a long time. Um, <laughs> all his life. <laughs> all, maybe all his life. Um, <laughs> but certainly, I mean, like Alice said, the Democrats can't afford to lose one vote on a lot of this stuff. And I know sort of the narrative of like, you know, Democrats and disarray and they're divided and they're, you know, in there's infighting. I know that's can be a little bit of a tired narrative, but I think we're probably going to see a lot of that this year. Um, you know, it's, it's just because you hold a majority in Congress doesn't mean it's going to be easy. I mean, like I said earlier, the house majority actually shrunk after election day, which was a mm -hmm. big blow to house Democrats. And, you know, like we've talked about, you have the vice president Harris, who's going to be the tie breaking vote. So especially in the house, you know, there's going to be a really fine line to walk between progressive members and, you know, more moderate members, more vulnerable members on a lot of different stuff. And, you know, that's going to be true in the Senate as well. So that's a big challenge for um, Chuck Schumer and uh, Pelosi. But the one power that I think that um, Schumer will exercise as the same way, maybe, but the opposite way that Mitch McConnell did is bringing votes to the floor, bringing issues to the floor. That's his decision, correct, as majority leader. So where McConnell right. would not bring something to the floor unless he knew he had all the Republican votes he needed to pass it, Chuck Schumer can bring something up, Alice, just to make Republicans vote on it. That's Force true. Force him to take a stand, right? That's true, although I think that, you know, at least in the first few months of the new administration, uh, there won't be a lot of floor time to spare for those kinds of, you know, messaging votes or or votes uh, to put people on the spot and embarrass them. They're going to certainly have their hands full juggling, you know, impeachment and mm -hmm. um, getting this COVID bill done, confirming Biden's cabinet. I think they're going to have an absolutely packed schedule, at least at the very beginning. But absolutely going forward, um, you know, the, Schumer will have the ability to, to bring up bills that will uh, make Republicans squirm. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, so let's move from day one, <laughs> already packed with action, uh, to look roughly over the one, uh, first 100 days, which we all sort of have, ever since the days of FDR, have picked out as the timeline we're supposed to see how effective a new president is. And uh, I want to point out that uh, you and your colleagues at Politico, Politico have done an excellent job uh, with the website you have of first 100 days where you look at what we might expect from the Biden administration uh, across the board on COVID, on the economy, on immigration, climate change, foreign policy, death penalty, you mentioned, uh, Alice. So, so uh, let's start on some of those big issues. Caitlin, you mentioned um, uh, the economy. Uh, it's a $1.9 trillion package that Biden has put out. Um, what's in it, Caitlin? Well, it's, like you said, $1.9 trillion. Um, a huge package filled with, you know, money for uh, schools, state and local governments, infrastructure, you know, vaccines. It's it's really um, everything that, you know, Democrats have wanted for a really long time. Um, like I said earlier, 
he's going to try and get a bipartisan deal on some of this stuff. Um, whether or not you have enough Republican buy-in really remains to be seen on that. Um, but, you know, this is sort of a, an opening first offer, right, to Congress. And we'll see in the coming weeks, I mean, how that's received and what ultimately comes together in terms of the deal. And again, like I said earlier, I mean, I'm, I'm skeptical. Um, you know, I think even just the top line number, now that Democrats are in control of Congress, I mean, the top line number of $1.9 trillion, I think you're going to have a lot of Republican members sort of yelling about how it's too expensive and, you know, the debt, the deficit, they're already so high and they're already so big. And, you know, I, I have a hard time seeing where Republicans accept hundreds of billions of dollars for state and local governments when they just simply couldn't do that, you know, months ago. But, you know, it's an opening offer and it has, it's just packed with uh, Democratic priorities that they wanted for, right. you know, since earlier last year. Uh, including increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour. But Alice, it, it, it's kind of um, um, cheeky, maybe, on the part of Republicans to suddenly become born-again deficit hawks. And, <laughs> and that's a point that Democrats will be making very loudly in the weeks to come. I think it's fascinating how much of a shift there's been, um, you know, within what how Biden is pitching this and his team, you know, this bill does not have any pay for it. There aren't cuts to other spending to pay for this. And they're coming out of the gate asking for this big number and making the case that we can, we can do this through deficit spending. It's more dangerous to do too little than to do too much. And I think, I think they've really sort of learned from the sort of deficit austerity um, climate of, of the Obama years and where that got them and are now taking a very different approach. I think, you know, that's also reflected in the kind of um, advisors who are coming into the administration from more progressive circles, um, including mm -hmm. folks um, around Elizabeth Warren. And so I think that's just a huge shift that we're seeing in, in how they're presenting this effort and in what's needed going forward. And I think that a lot of Democrats feel that Republicans have given up all credibility on the deficit issue after having stayed silent as the deficit exploded under President Trump. Right. Uh, and then all of this uh, economic package is, of course, related to uh, the coronavirus pandemic. Um, but the more maybe specific there are, in fact, more specific plans that Biden has talked about to deal with that. Um, we'll get into that after we take a, break, a quick break here uh, on the uh, Bill Press Pod, talking today with two uh, reporters from Politico who've been uh, covering the Biden transition, Alice Olstein and Caitlin Emma. Quick break, and we'll be right back. And today's podcast, looking ahead at the Biden administration, brought to you today by the Teamsters Union, the largest and most diverse of all of Americans' labor unions, with 1.4 million members who represent collectively the face of America's workforce, from vegetable workers in California to sanitation workers in New York, from brewers in St. Louis to zookeepers in Pennsylvania, all under the leadership of President Jim Hoffa. We salute the Teamsters for their great work around this country and for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Check out their website at teamster.org. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? 
Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back here looking ahead at the Biden administration day one and the first 100 days with Alice Holstein and Caitlin Emma from uh, Politico. So, um, Caitlin, on the COVID front, 100 million vaccines in 100 days. Wow. Right. Uh, That's very ambitious. Certainly really ambitious. This is like, could you think of anything more critical than having to vaccinate, you know, every single person in America, make sure they get both shots, who's getting prioritized? Do you have enough funding for it? Certainly, there's been a lot of criticism from the Trump administration about whether or not they've done a good job with this rollout. And, you know, that's the question on everybody's mind is when am I going to get vaccinated? Yeah, well, Alice, we know that uh, Trump uh, uh, Trump promised 20 million by the end of the year. It didn't happen. They're just about halfway there now. So how how's Biden going to be able to do this if Trump couldn't? So a lot of it depends on getting Congress to approve a lot of this funding. The bill he is proposing calls for 20 billion just for vaccinations alone. And that includes you know, ramping up the production and distribution, but that also includes opening a lot more sites for vaccinations all around the country, especially um, opening up sites that are not at hospitals and pharmacies. There's a big concern, not only that vaccinations are lagging right now, but that they're really lagging in neighborhoods and communities of color. And those are the hardest hit and the most at risk for getting sick and dying. And a lot of those neighborhoods don't have a hospital or a pharmacy. And Mm -hmm. so there's this big push to open up sites at community centers, churches, sports stadiums. Um, So that will not only increase the number of people getting vaccinated, but also try to deal with some of the racial disparities that we're seeing. Another issue is that there's just not not only are there not enough sites for people to get vaccinated, that's why you're seeing like lines and, you know, a lot of chaos right now, you know, in D.C. and elsewhere. But there's also not enough people doing the vaccinations. And so part of Biden's bill is also to create a a federal public health corps of 100,000 workers that can be trained to do things like vaccines, but then later can can do other things that uh, communities need to recover from the pandemic. Um, So a lot of this depends on Congress. But, you know, even... Even before Congress gets this bill done, they really hope to, you know, improve communication with states, open up a lot of more sort of federally run. It's just a shift in attitude. The Trump administration's attitude was that, you know, they developed the vaccine and sent it out to states. And after that, it's the state's problem. And the Biden team uh, doesn't have that attitude. They, you know, want to work with the states. They want to have a much stronger federal role in vaccinations as well as in testing and all the other parts of this problem. 
Right. But it really lays a marker out there that they're going to be judged against, right? Which is right, right. Pretty, and pretty bold in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, you are hearing, you know, Dr. Fauci and others say this is this is we can do this. This is realistic based on where we're at. And already we're seeing the pace of vaccinations ramping up even, you know, ahead of ahead of the change in administration. Yeah. Uh, Kate, on that point, the one thing that I think the Biden Biden himself and his team have been pretty um, frank about is not overpromising, right? They're saying this is bad and it's only going to get worse before it gets better, which right. we never which we never heard, Caitlin, right. from, from Donald Trump, right? Right. Like Alice said, it's a shift in um, you know attitude. It's a shift in tone. It's you know, you had all last year, President Trump, you know, back in March or April saying, like, this is going to end. Like, we're going to open up in, you remember, like, before Easter when it was like, this is going to end. We're going to open up oh, yeah. businesses. Life's going to return to normal. It's like the end of March. Everybody's like, what's going on? <laughs> now it's January and we're all still inside and the infection rates are worse than they've ever been. So you have, uh, for the first time, really an administration approaching something realistically and saying, you know, this is the challenge that we face and this is what we think we can get done. Uh, some of the other, if either of you, um, I know you have your own sort of uh, area of specialty in your reporting. Um, uh, do either of you have any sense of what we might see on the climate change front? Well, like I was saying earlier about this this idea of reconciliation, um, so it's basically this this tool, this privileged budget tool, right, that requires um, you know just a simple majority of Democrats in the Senate to uh, pass enormous legislation that um, affects basically federal spending and revenues. Uh, so they're Democrats are limited in how often they can use it and you know what exactly they can use it for. But I think the question right now is. Um, do Democrats have to use reconciliation to get a huge pandemic and fiscal stimulus package through? Separately from that, the Biden administration has indicated, and I spoke to actually uh, Bernie Sanders last week, who's going to be chair of the Senate Budget Committee. Separately, Democrats are really focused on clean energy, infrastructure, housing, healthcare expansion, uh, and sort of just addressing this problem of broader systemic unemployment by you know, making massive investments in these areas. And there's sort of in, a question- In clean energy, renewable clean, energy. Clean energy right. and renewable energy, which could create jobs, which will obviously you know, uh, tackle all of the you know, progress that was maybe undone under the Trump administration. So certainly that is a really big uh, promise that the Biden administration has made. And they have this budget tool reconciliation at their disposal to pass an enormous um, infrastructure, clean energy, renewable energy uh, package investment, you know, should they choose to do that in the future. Right. And Alice, I guess there are other ways. I mean, EPA regulations and back to executive orders, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, the, the Keystone XL move is definitely, you know, going after something that has been a big priority for uh, climate activists. But I think it's also sort of an indication of what the administration might be willing to do going forward with these kinds of permits and and um, using agency power on that front. Um, you know, there's also been 
all of these Trump uh, actions over the past four years to, you know, weaken environmental regulations for water, air, all kinds of things. And I think you're going to see a lot of those be rolled back in under the new administration. Uh, and you mentioned that day one, um, the uh, Biden team has indicated an executive order to rejoin the Paris Accords. Can they do that by executive order? I believe so. Yes. And, and, you know, with the hiring of John Kerry to be in charge of this, you know, international climate focus, and he's going to have a pretty significant office and staff and be very close to the president. I think that indicates, um, you know, how much they want him and his team to do in the, in the coming years. Mm-hmm. Um, Kate, and what about the filibuster? Uh, this right. has been, this has been the big bugaboo right in the Senate. Uh, uh, and Democrats for a long time have wanted to get rid of it so they can just have majority rule. Is that going to be a priority? Is that likely to happen? I don't even know where Biden stands on that. Or do we know? I mean, it, it doesn't seem super likely. I mean, I think I would personally be surprised if Democrats decided to get rid of the filibuster. Um, you know, I can, think. A, can they do it by majority vote? What do they need to do to get rid of it? I, I, Procedurally, I mean, I think it would be complicated. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of progressives probably frustrated with the fact that, um, you know, more like earlier you called Biden sort of an institutionalist who, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that's definitely represented by the fact that he wants to pursue a bipartisan deal on pandemic aid, at least initially. Um, So given his long career in the Senate, given his history working with Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, um, it certainly seems unlikely that he would be full-throated, you know, endorsing something like getting rid of the filibuster. I think that's going to be enormously frustrating for a lot of um, progressive Democrats who are like, you know, let's break all the rules. Let's break all the norms. You know, Republicans did it. Trump did it. So what are we doing? You know what I mean? But uh, at this time, I mean, I don't think it's likely, but like I keep saying, <laughs> it's all about reconciliation for me on my personal beat. And um you know, it's their biggest tool in their back pocket to get around the filibuster. I mean, you can pass trillions of dollars in priorities and get past the filibuster using reconciliation. And and during the 117th Congress, Democrats will really have uh, technically maybe as many as three times um, to use it. And there's precedent, you know, for using it twice because Republicans mm-hmm. did so in 2017. So even if they don't get rid of the filibuster, uh, they have they have a back pocket weapon to, you know, pass as much as they want if they're really aggressive about it. Well, Alice, back to health care. I believe uh, that um, President Obama used reconciliation to get the Affordable Care Act passed. Yeah, it's so fascinating to me how the saga of the Affordable Care Act, which is obviously still ongoing with the Supreme Court's involvement, but it, it's just sort of defined politics for, for this whole era. And they're just keeping references back to it. I, you know, I had um, uh, staffers on Capitol Hill telling me that, you know, looking at the upcoming negotiations over the COVID bill, they were referring back to um, when they were first negotiating the Affordable Care Act, and they felt that Republicans strung them along for months and months and months, and they compromised and compromised and tried to get their votes, and eventually they couldn't get Republican votes, and they just passed it through reconciliation. And so they want to learn from that, and the lesson that person who said that took was you know, don't waste your time. They're never going to 
they're never mm-hmm. going to come on board. I mean, you could draw a different lesson. It's kind of a Rorschach test, I guess. But um, but that was the lesson they took. And then, of course, now you have progressives um, like Bernie Sanders saying, you know, we should use reconciliation as aggressively as possible. Republicans tried to use it in 2017 to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which was a huge it would have been a you know deficit exploder had it actually happened. It would have impacted tens of millions of people had it happened. Um, and so they're like, we should use it just as aggressively to do what we want, expanding mm-hmm. healthcare, et cetera. Um, and so I, you know, all of these different pieces of the Affordable Care Act um, saga are continuing to shape how people want to proceed moving forward. And does Biden still intend to? Is his basic Healthcare approach. Uh, once we deal with COVID, uh, mm-hmm. to improve and expand the Affordable Care Act. Yes, absolutely. So he campaigned on creating a public option, which would compete along with private plans. You know, give people a, a cheaper Medicare-like um, plan that they could mm-hmm. buy, uh, especially in areas where there's not as many choices. Um, I think that'll be hard to pass through the Senate. We will see what happens. Um, but he campaigned on that, and he also campaigned on lowering the Medicare eligibility age from 65 to 60, which would, you know, impact uh, tens of millions of people as well. And so those are sort of the big ticket items. There are also a lot of other promises, you know, making Obamacare subsidies more generous, um, you know, incentivizing states that haven't uh, expanded Medicaid to do so, but also giving people in states that haven't expanded Medicaid the ability to get on the the public option. Um, so there's there's a lot out there. Um, I guess the first indication we will see in this COVID bill, they've um, Biden has suggested uh, or proposed um, covering the healthcare insurance of people who lost their jobs due to the pandemic. But that would happen mm. through through COBRA, sort of continuing them on their same private plan. And progressives say that is a very expensive, very wasteful way to go about it. Like, obviously, we don't want these people to lose their health insurance and be uninsured in the middle of a pandemic. But they're saying if we just enrolled all those people in Medicare or Medicaid, it would be way cheaper. <laughs> um, so th- there's going to be some uh, dem on dem fight on, right. on the front in the years ahead, for sure. Uh, now, there's one other uh, area that, of course, Joe Biden is very interested in, in terms of all these policies. There's also the personnel issue, meaning um, he's got an empty administration until he can get his people confirmed. Um, uh, Caitlin, what's that look like? Well, certainly with a, a narrow majority in the Senate now, um, Obviously, that makes things a lot easier for his political nominees. Uh, You know, for example, I cover budget and appropriations process, and Neera Tandon was somebody who I was watching really closely uh, in terms of his, you know, nominee for the Office of Management and Budget. And I think certainly, you know, a few months ago before the election, um, Republicans indicated, you know, that they were very unhappy with her, you know, criticism of the GOP on social media, uh, to which a lot of Democrats fired back, like, have you, you know, seen your president on Twitter lately? Have you seen the things that he's tweeting about Republicans? Like, two-way street. Um, But certainly, she was maybe his most controversial nominee at that point. Um, She could still face, you know, some issues, I think, maybe going forward. Uh, It might be something of a tough confirmation hearing. But, you know, now that we have um, the tie-breaking vote with Vice President Harris, I think, like, 
you know, she is a lot less of a problem. Uh, you know, I think certainly though, uh, he is going to have to prioritize filling um, some of these, in the meantime, filling some of these cabinet mm-hmm. leadership positions with career staffers or, you know, other um, folks who are at these agencies, you know, tapping them until he can get his folks in place. Because, you know, as we've seen, the Trump administration has sort of dragged its feet on the transition, has sort of, you know, uh, inhibited Biden's folks from getting into these agencies and really getting everything they need access to. So, he might have a little bit of a problem, you know, staffing up initially, it might take like a little while, but I think in terms of the confirmation process, you know, certainly with um, a democratic majority in the Senate, even the slimmest of margins can only really help him at this point. Yeah. And Alice, I guess the other thing that they're doing, uh, at least talking about, and I, I believe it's the president elect who suggested that they could bifurcate and spend like mornings on uh, the, the Senate trial of Donald Trump. We, and uh, which Biden has sort of left up to Congress to decide what they do about that, uh, and afternoons on confirmation hearings or vice versa. Right, absolutely. And the, like I said, they're they're going to have a very full plate at the beginning. You know, even if, if they're able to do both at once, you know, Democrats are very frustrated and feel that you know the Senate could have already taken this up before the inauguration and begun the the impeachment. Um, and, you know, there's been some sniping back and forth about that, obviously. But yes, and, you know, it, it, it's a great frustration to Biden's team that the uh, confirmation hearings um, have not begun already. And, you know, they point to, um, you know, past instances, including in the very recent past of, you know, President Trump, several of President Trump's cabinet nominees getting pre-inauguration confirmation mm-hmm. hearings so that they could, you know, hit the ground running right away. And so... Um, there, there is uh, frustration about that. However, there are uh, starting hearings for a bunch of nominees uh, tomorrow, mostly the national security folks. I got it. I didn't realize that. So, um, you know, I remember, I believe I remember that Joe Biden himself at one time talked about uh, being a tr- transitional president. Uh, if he didn't, at least common, a lot of commentators did say that that's what the Biden administration will probably be, maybe just four years, a transition. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you hear about the things you guys have talked about that he plans right from day one, he sounds more like a transformational president, that maybe he sees himself more as a FDR, right? And that's what the times require than a Jimmy Carter, for example, or something. Um I'd just like to wrap up by getting both of your thoughts about um, how you think Joe Biden sees, you know, the demands of the time uh, for his presidency. Who wants to go first? Alice, it looks like you're ready to jump in. Sure. (laughs) So, I mean, the pandemic is just going to define everything. He campaigned on being the right person to turn things around and, you know, prosecuted the case against Trump's management of the pandemic. And so he's staked the success of his presidency on this. And, you know, a lot will be outside of his control, but a lot, you know, will be writing on how he mobilizes the entirety of the government to deal with this. And, you know, like Caitlin said earlier, he's coming into office. The pandemic is worse than it's been since the beginning. People are dying at record rates and they're really trying to set, you know, they're setting ambitious goals, but they're also trying to set realistic goals and sort of 
manage people's expectations and emphasize, you know, this isn't going to turn around right away. Even if we start doing everything right now, like so much of the infection and death is already mm -hmm. baked in that it's going to take, you know, many weeks to turn the corner. And so, um, but they're saying, you know, at least we can start right away doing, doing the right things on testing and contact tracing and vaccinations and whatnot. And so I think that, you know, both on the legislative side in Congress and on the executive side, that is just going to be what he'll be judged on. And uh, he seems highly aware of that. Every speech he gives, you know, is, is um, focused on that in some way. And I, you know, I think that this, this will really be, be the marker of what kind of president he ends up being. Uh, Caitlin, transitional, transformational. Right. Well, I, I think he, I mean, like you said, is sort of forced to being, to, to respond to the moment. Um, you know, I think he's certainly familiar with what it took for Obama um, in his first term to respond to the economic crisis back then. And, you know, considering what he has to respond to now, I, I think it's a lot, lot worse. It, at least he, you know, he has the experience when it comes to responding to one economic crisis previously. But I think what is really interesting about this is that, you know, for all indications, um, that folks have received, he only intends to serve one term, right? Um, that is what we're basically operating on at the moment. So I think in terms of um, this particular this particular moment, this particular presidency and this particular Congress, uh, it's sort of a don't blow it moment for Democrats. You know what I mean? I think Democrats really don't want to lose the White House after um, President Biden's mm -hmm. first term is up. You know, there is certainly a major question in a couple of years of whether or not House Democrats can defend their majority in the House. And the fact that they, you know, eked out the barest of wins in the Senate. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, Democrats really stand to lose it all. You know what I mean? In just, you know, another in a few election cycles. So his President Biden's response to the pandemic and the current economic crisis, in addition to how, you know, the next few years go, will really be pivotal for the party in terms of whether they can maintain and expand their majority in Congress and, you know, keep the White House in four more years. So there's a lot of stake. And uh, I, I like the way you summed up. This is their don't blow it moment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Democrats. <laughs> well, every transition, um, presidential transition, uh, is an exciting time, sometimes a, a worrisome time. Uh, this one is particularly uh, exciting, I think, because the change uh, from a Donald Trump to a Joe Biden uh, and the kind of presidency we're going to see uh, is so great. Um, so it's going to be a, um, a pretty wild next 100 days and probably a pretty wild next uh, two years. Uh, and thank you, uh, Alice Olstein and Caitlin Emma, for giving us some insights into what we can expect once uh, Joe Biden takes the oath of office uh, just 24 hours from now. Thanks, Alice. Thanks, Caitlin. Thanks so much. Thank you. And that's it for today's podcast here at a very exciting time, the end, thank God, of uh, the Donald Trump presidency and the beginning, thank God again, for the Joe Biden presidency starting at noon on Wednesday, January 20. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, a little reminder for more on what to look forward to and expect out of the Biden administration. Check the episode notes to this podcast for that special website, special page that Politico has put together on the first 100 days of the Biden administration, covering all the issues from COVID to the economy, immigration to climate change, to foreign policy, 
to uh, elimination of the federal death penalty. It's all carried there on the first 100 days, again, uh, with a link to that website from on the episode notes to this podcast. Again, thanks for listening. Stay strong, stay safe. Oh, you know, COVID is still with us. You got to keep up uh, those protections that we've been practicing for so long. Soon it will be over, but not yet. So take care of yourself and then come back and see us on the next edition of the Bill Press Podcast.